Why don't you go ahead and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 3 through 16 this morning. The topic is care of widows. Anytime you come to this subject, the subject of widows, it's often suggested that widows during the Old and the New Testament um, had no means of care or support. In fact, it's often said that widows were destitute when they lost a husband. And as we'll see this morning, that really wasn't necessarily the case, but they were one of the most vulnerable of the ancient society, but in many respects, they can also be some of the most vulnerable in our society as well. And so both Paul and God have something to say about widows when it comes to the church. Now, as we're going to go through, as we go through this, one of the things that we'll see, however, that there are principles that drive what Paul says about widows here. And those principles can be applied to not just widows, but others as well. And so that will be what we'll do today. Let's start first and foremost looking at widows in the first century. Um, Again, it's often taught or thought unrealistically that widows had no way to care for themselves in the first century. And so the church was burdened with that, and that's often the way that it's taught, but that's not really the case. In fact, widows during the first century oftentimes were able to maintain their possessions. It's mistaught oftentimes that widows had no rights when it came to land, that wives gave up their rights to their husbands when they got married, and that's not really true. And so oftentimes widows still were able to maintain their family rights to land and possessions. Um, Many were able to work outside the home. Um, Both Jewish law and Greek and Roman culture actually had things built into them to maintain and to care for widows and orphans within the society. There were expectations that even the unsaved had to care for those who were in need. In some respects, kind of like our society where we have certain things built into it to help care for the needy. You may agree or disagree with some of those things, but the reality of it is that even in our culture and society, there is an, a sense that we are to care for those that have need. And it was the same way when it came to Jewish culture, Roman culture, Greek culture as well. Now, specifically when it came to the Old Testament, there were, there were laws built into the Old Testament to care for widows and, and others, like orphans and, and maybe the poor who had come from other countries and that. So I want you to turn to a passage for me, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And this is just going to lay the groundwork for us. Because many of the principles that we would hold dear as Christians originate with the Old Testament. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And so we see those same principles carried forward from the Old Testament into the New. Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, that's what's left behind, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, that's a foreigner, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you gather the grapes in your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. 
It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I am commanding you to do this very thing. And so the standard that God laid out for farmers, whether it was their grain crops or their grapes or literally anything else that they would grow, was that they would go through and they would harvest that crop. Anything left behind, they couldn't go back over it a second time. They had to specifically leave it for the orphans, the widows, the foreigners in the land who didn't own land. It was God's way of making sure that they were cared for and provided. Now there's something else God did. Deuteronomy chapter 26, there was a second law. It wasn't just what was left over. They were expected to give a portion of their tithes as well. Now a tithe was 10% of their crops. Oftentimes we hear it said that you, know, you have to tithe, give a 10% of what you earn. In the Old Testament, they tithed but did it three times a year. It actually averaged to about 28% of what they, what they were worth. So if we want to literally hold to the concept of a tithe, we ought to be given 28%. Now, I'm not a proponent of that. But those who want to argue that have to deal with the fact that, again, they tithe three different times. But part of the tithe was to be used to provide for not just the Levites, but others. Look at Deuteronomy 26, starting in verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, this is every third year they'd have to do this, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house, that's the tithe, and also have given it to the Levite, and the alien, and the orphan, and the widow, according to all of your commandments which you have commanded to me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Other portions of scripture indicate that they were to take that tithe and bring it into the center of the city, where the orphans and the widows and the aliens could all come and gather whatever they needed. And so there's this precedent set in the Old Testament by God that they cared for widows, orphans, aliens, and others. And so our passage of Scripture that we come to today is born out of that principle that they were to be cared for. So when you think about it, even with all of that, even with what was built into the Old Testament, even what was built into Roman and Greek culture and caring for those who were in need, widows and orphans were often some of the most vulnerable in society much like we would see here today. When a woman loses her husband, if he's the the primary financial contributor to the home, it puts that home in difficult circumstances. And so even with other means of support that might be able to be provided through government or other things, they can still sometimes be the most vulnerable. And so what the Bible does is it calls on the church to care for them within their local body. So we're going to look at that today. So while it's primarily about widows, we're going to broaden that out a little bit because that's the principle that drives why we care for widows. But it's a principle that extends even beyond widows. So let's go ahead and look at this. We're going to read verses 3 through 16 this morning. Chapter 5, 3 through 16. Let's read it first and we'll come back and digest it. 
Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues to in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works... And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? There's probably some things in there already that you're going, hmm, I wonder exactly what that means. And so we'll dive into that. We'll kind of see what we can learn this morning. The first principle, and we're going to do this based on principles. There's going to be three of them today that I'm going to walk us through. But the first principle is that God expects us, the church, to care for widows who are truly in need. Look back at verse 3. It says, Honor widows who are widows Indeed. Now that word for honor there has a variety of meanings. One of those meanings is just to respect somebody. This we, we see with Jesus used it in 15, Matthew chapter 15, verse 4. When he's quoting from the Old Testament, he's quoting from Exodus chapter 20. He says, For God said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. That's the concept of request. Or, I'm sorry, um, respect. He used it the same way a few verses later when he quoted from Isaiah chapter 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So one of the uses of the word honor there means to offer somebody respect. That's carried over in the New Testament as well where we're told to honor our father and mother. It's one of the commandments that comes with a blessing. And so we have the word honor here. One use is this idea of offering respect. However, there's a second use of this word honor And it has to do with providing for somebody's needs. Jesus also in Matthew chapter 15 uses it, I believe, in that way. So he uses it to offer respect, but also caring for parents. Because in Matthew chapter 15, when he goes on into verse 5, he kind of clarifies something for us here. He says, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. For he is not to honor his father and his mother. And by this you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. What Jesus is talking about there is there was this tradition with the Pharisees. The Old Testament says that they had to honor their parents and it included financially caring for them as needed. But the Pharisees, because they wanted the money to come into their coffers, came up with this rule that basically said, well, you can dedicate what you have to God by giving it to the temple where we can use it. 
And in doing that, you don't have to use it to take care of your parents. There's a way of circumventing the law and making it sound kind of godly. And so Jesus basically chastises them there and says, you're invalidating the word of God by this practice because you're not honoring your parents. Because he says here, if you say, hey, whatever I could have used to support you, I'm giving to God as some holy thing. He's like, you're just violating the word of God. So Jesus chastised them for that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, we see it says this, The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching and teaching the word. So there we see the word honor, much like Jesus used it in the second instance, to refer to financial provision. And so this word kind of is a, it's got these two primary meanings. One is to offer respect. The second is to provide financially for someone. Sometimes you see both of these meanings used at the same time in the same exact sentence. If you remember the story of Paul when he ended up on the island of Malta, he was stuck there for three months. And when he got ready to leave, Acts chapter 28 verse 10 says this, They also honored us with many marks of respect, meaning words of respect. But then he goes on and he says, And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with everything we needed. And so you see that sort of that nuance there of they, were, they honored us, not just in their words, but providing for all of our needs. That's probably the greatest form of honoring someone, is to provide for them. So what we see here in chapter 5, when it says that we are to honor widows who are widows indeed, we see that both of those nuances are involved there. We're to respect them, But we are also to provide for them, to honor them as a church body. Now, there is a condition, however. If you notice, it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. The more literal translation of that is, those who are truly widows. So what does Paul mean by that? When we think of widows, we think of somebody who's just simply lost a husband. And that is true. They are genuinely widows. But what Paul has in mind here are not those who are just technically widows, but those who don't have any type of support. They don't have a family. They don't have somebody to care for them. So they are truly widowed in that respect. I was working with Kimberly yesterday on trying to help her format a Word document. And you know, I'm an IT guy, and I know that you know sometimes... Microsoft products can be a little stubborn. And it wasn't doing what's called orphan and widow, widow control properly. What that means is when you get to the end of a paragraph, you might remember this from school, if there's one line left but you're at the bottom margin of the page, it pushes that sentence to the next page, but you're not supposed to have a single line at the top of a, the next page, right? So there's a setting in Microsoft Word called orphan and widow control that'll basically take two lines and move them to the next page. So you don't have a widow or an orphan line on the next page. So I was trying to work through that, and Kimberly was like, why do they call it orphan and widow? And so I had to talk her through that. that well, because it's like a single, it's all by itself now, it doesn't have anybody else with it. And, you know, Kimberly being as straightforward, she says, it's not a widow, it's not an orphan, it's a swine, you know. But that's what we're talking about here. So a, a widow who is truly a widow indeed is somebody who has not just lost their husband, but is now left alone. They are truly widows in that regard. What's our takeaway as we look at just this principle 
It says that we're to honor them, widows who are truly widows indeed. Well, the Bible teaches us that we have a responsibility to care for those who are in need, not just widows. Again, this is born out of a principle that we are to care for those who need help. There was obviously a problem at Ephesus with widows, and so Paul had to remind them of that. We've already seen how the Old Testament law mandated that portions of the field be left for the widows on a regular basis every year when they harvested, but then specifically every three years giving a portion of that to care for them. But you remember what we saw in the book of Acts? went through 14 months, I think it took us to study through the book of Acts. And do you remember a theme that showed up about how they took care of one another? I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. This is something that the, the early church understood. Acts chapter 2, look at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. It means they were having their meals together. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They shared their stuff And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. They understood the principle of caring for those within their local body. And so some of them sold their possessions to meet the needs of those who had less than they did. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Jump down to verse 33. Well, let's just go up to verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each one as any had need. Now that's pretty radical, isn't it? The Bible doesn't command us to sell all our belongings. However, what it does do is tell us to take care of those who are needy. Those within our family, those within our body. There's an expectation that we will help to care for them. And the way that the early church did that was they sold their possessions. They shared things in common. Now, at this particular time, it was pretty rough to be a Christian. They were being persecuted pretty severely. There were great needs. In fact, you remember Paul collected stuff for the saints back in Jerusalem where the persecution was the most severe. And so the believers outside of Jerusalem would put aside a certain amount at the beginning of every week Paul, when he got there, collected it, took it back to Worthington to meet the needs of the saints that were in Jerusalem. That's the principle. That's the principle that we ought to be following. Remember the story of feeding of the widows in Acts chapter 6, where some of the Hellenistic Jews were realizing that their Jews weren't being cared for like the Hebrew Jews or Hebrew widows were being taken care of better than the Greek widows. And some of the Greek widows weren't having some of their needs met. And so they approached the apostles. And what did the apostles do? They said, pick seven men among you to be put in charge of distribution of the food and the care for the widows. And so that's what they did. One of them, you remember, was Stephen. So they met the needs, specifically of the widows. 
I found an interesting statement. My favorite book of the Bible is James. In James chapter 1, verse 27, James says this, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. And so what do we see in this first principle? It starts with honoring widows who are widows indeed, but the principle that underlies it is caring for those who need it. And so that's what we see here. The second principle that we see in this passage is that the responsibility to care for widows first and foremost falls on the family. And that's critical, and we'll see that why we go through the, as we go through the text here. There is an expectation that the church will do it, but first and foremost, the expectation is that families are responsible for their widows. Look at verses 4 through 8. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe and teach these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are some pretty harsh words. But the thing we see here is that the local church is not to function as a dispensary handing out provisions just willy-nilly. I think I shared a story with you a couple of weeks ago about within um, churches that are associated with NAR, the, the um, New Apostolic Apostle Movement, that the way that they pay their pastors and that is sort of through this circuit mentality where, well, I don't get paid here, but I'll just go over there and I'll preach and you'll give me a $10,000 stipend for a 30-minute message and you'll put me up in a really swanky hotel and maybe even donate that Rolex watch. And then I'll invite you to my church and we'll do the same thing. And what's interesting about that is it's the elders and the pastors on the top that make all the money. They're feeding themselves. Look at what we see when we flip on any one of the televangelists on television flying around in their multi-million dollar jets, raking it in. The church is not to be this mechanism for building wealth, whether it's the people at the top or even just functioning as a dispensary, handing out willy-nilly. And so when we come to this passage here, it says that if any widow has children or grandchildren, the Bible places a responsibility of caring for widows first and foremost on the family. Here he mentions specifically children and grandchildren. So it's not just the first generation, it's the second generation. He says that they're to first learn piety in regard to their own family. That means that they're to fulfill their duties. That's a better understanding of that. They're to fulfill their duties to their family. There's an expectation, a responsibility, not just to mothers and fathers, but specifically to moms when they lose their husband. Look at what else it says. They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. Now, what's interesting about that statement is a literal rendering of that statement is made to give back to their parents. Made to give back. It doesn't mean that they're to go back home necessarily. What this literally says is that they are to pay back their 
widow. Think about that for just a moment. You know, we've been married how many years now, Amy? 23 years. Got an uh, 18-year-old here shortly. We've got a 21-year-old. We have invested time, energy, finances, care, love into Kimberly and Katie's lives. And it doesn't end there. It will continue. I'm going to say unashamedly, they owe us. (laughs) They owe us. I have told my mom, my mom lost dad about seven or eight years ago. Um, One of the last conversations I had with my dad was his concern of the financial shape mom might be in after his death. And I remember they're sitting at Culver's and I looked and I said, Dad, first off, you did a great job providing for her. She's going to be fine, and she still is. But I said, you've got nothing to worry about. You've got four kids. Any one of us kids would drag mom's butt wherever we need to take her if it comes down to her needing to be cared for. Plain and simple. You raised us that way. My dad was that way with his own family. In fact, out of eight brothers and sisters, the one thing that so many of my dad's brothers and sisters told us about my dad, especially at his funeral, was that he was the glue that held the family together. When my dad was in the military, my dad did not finish high school. He got arrested for stealing a loaf of bread or something. I don't remember what it was. And they gave him an ultimatum. They said either military or charges and possibly jail time. So the priest worked out a deal where dad could go into the military. And so he dropped out of school, went into the military. Half his paycheck went back home to take care of his mom, who was a widow. My dad lost his dad when he was 13. Half my dad's paycheck went back to take care of grandma. He had eight brothers and sisters. Where were they? I can tell you, when my dad got married, he went to his brother, who was unmarried at the time, and said, hey, I'm going to need to have some of this now to care for my wife and my family. And his brother refused. My dad still continued to give half of his income on a military income. Sent it back home to take care of his mom. Why? He owed her. Now, he didn't do it just because he felt obligated. He loved his mother. But that's the way my dad always was. So it says here that they should be made to give back to their parents. And I love the way... Paul writes it here. They should be made to do it. Which means, if they weren't, somebody should approach them and say, we expect you to give back to your parents. This is your responsibility. You need to care. And so he says they should be made to return. And he says, why? It's this that's acceptable to the Lord. Nothing else is acceptable. That is what acceptable means. Now, lest we think that Paul is making a suggestion or a recommendation, well, you know, encourage them to do it. Maybe they should think about it. He gives them a stark warning. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, his own what? His own widow, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That is an indictment. Worse than an unbeliever. 
He says they deny the faith. That means that they reject the sound doctrine and practices of Christian faith. It means they reject what is written right here. It says they're worse than unbelievers. It's interesting in light of the fact that Jewish, Roman, and Greek culture all had expectations that you would take care of a widow. Even the unsaved knew that that was the right thing to do. But what an indictment that is. When the unsaved world around us knows the right thing to do, and as a believer we don't, we don't exercise that, that's an indictment. Now you may have noticed I jumped over verses 5 and 7. Paul does what he sometimes does here. I think Paul maybe had ADHD sometimes. And I say that with affection. He goes back to this idea of what does it mean to be a widow indeed. That's why I jumped over it. We're going to go back and look at it right now. I wanted to keep verse 8 with what was above it because it's the way Paul thinks. Now she was a widow indeed and who has been left alone. Says she's fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. We're going to see in a moment that it appears that they had lists and they would put widows on that list and it was a way to keep track of who needed to be cared for. But as part of being put on that list, it appears that they took a pledge to remain unmarried, but also to minister within the church through prayers and entreaties. That became a ministry of theirs. And so it was, it was as if um, they said, look, we know that you're without family. We know that you, can't, that you need help, and so we're going to take care of you as a church family. But we'll do that as long as you have no other means of support, so as long as you're no longer married. But also pray and entreat on our behalf. Become a minister for us on our behalf. And so that's what they would do. And so he says that that's the kind of widow who's truly alone. She's fixed her hope on God and she continues in these entreaties and these prayers night and day. But then he counters that with, but the one who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Basically, what he's laying out here is a widow who is truly a widow indeed is one who has committed herself to pray and to entreat on behalf of the church. That's how she spends her time. That's what she does. Those who seek pleasure or wanton pleasure as he says it here, they're not widows indeed by Paul's definition. So a true widow is someone who has devoted herself to these things. It's not somebody who involves themselves in self-indulgence. He uses the same language in James chapter... James uses the same language when he refers to the rich. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. That means you're driven by your lusts, your desires, your emotions. And so Paul spends a little bit of time here sort of defining for us what, again, it means to be a widow indeed. It's a bit of an excursus, we call it, where he steps out for a little bit. What's the takeaway from this passage here? The principle, again, is that children and grandchildren are expected to pay back parents and grandparents. And if time comes where that parent or that grandparent needs to be cared for, they need to step up and do it. They don't have any excuse not to. They owe it to them. We just read a few minutes ago that if we don't do that, we're worse than an unbeliever. You know, what's interesting about that is I've shared about an individual I know from down south who um, is unsaved, and um, he reaches out occasionally to me, and we, we talk, and I've been able to share the gospel with him at different times. And um, he called me not too long ago, and um, he was in, I'll call it dire straits, depressed, emotionally a wreck. His marriage is struggling. Um, 
He's uh, having some physical issues. He went through knee surgery and just a simple meniscus tear. But now he can barely walk. It just has never healed properly. There's possibly some things the doctor didn't do correctly. Um, So he's quite depressed. Well, on top of that, his mother lives just down the street from him. And he's got a terrible relationship with his mother. He describes her as being extremely abusive, has always been abusive verbally. I don't know that she's ever been physically abusive, but it's just very unpleasant. And so as he, he talked about that burden, but he talked about how it's just him. He's got no siblings that can help care for her. So here he is with, with this terrible relationship with his mother. He said, it is burdensome when I go down there to care for her and I just get berated constantly. But what else does she have? So he does it. If a Christian does not care for their mother or a grandmother when they desperately need it, you're worse than that person that I just described. Because he knows, even as an unsaved person, what's expected. And he does it in spite of the fact that it's not appreciated, that he's berated, and he's treated like dirt when he does it. If an unsaved person can do that, what does it say about us when we don't? So the principle there is that, first and foremost, the burden for caring for a widow, and I would argue anybody in your family that needs to be cared for, the burden falls first and foremost on the family. That's God's mechanism for dealing with that. So I would extend this principle out not just to say that I'm responsible for my own mother, for my mother-in-law. I would say anybody. My dad, I mentioned how he cared for his mother. Well, he had a brother, um, Bob, who had three sons who were all, um, what's the, I don't even know what the, I'm going to say mentally retarded, but that's not even appropriate anymore apparently. But that's what the term always was. They're all mentally challenged, mentally retarded to some degree. Um, one can barely care for him, function on, or two of them actually. One has been able to work a job and care for himself for the most part. He got married, but he's got a lot of other issues, schizophrenia and a bunch of other stuff. And so anyway, when, when um, and, then, and then the mom, Bob's wife, um, was completely gone mentally, was put into a home for the last, I'm guessing, 10, 15 years at least of the marriage. So she was in a home, and then he had three mentally retarded children. When he died, my dad took over care of those three boys. Handled all their finances. Handled all the little issues whenever Brian would call up because his wife, who also had mental issues, disappeared or something happened with, with one of the other boys. I mean, one of them was arrested for some stuff at times and my dad was involved with that, you know. And Why did dad do that? Because the burden falls on the family This was his brother, and there was nobody else. Think about that, you know. Dad with a wife who's in a mental home, and three boys who can't care for themselves. When he dies, nobody's there to care for those four individuals. So my dad stepped in. Why? Because the burden falls on the family. And so that's exactly what my dad did. And so that principle applies to us as well. Now, what happens when you have a widow who is truly a widow indeed and needs to be cared for, and when she doesn't have the family to do that? Or she has family that refuses to do that? That leads us to our third principle. 
And that's that there's criteria that must be met before the church actually becomes responsible for widows. Because now the burden falls on the local church, but there are criteria on how that works out. The first principle has already been stated, which is that they must truly be widows in need. Second principle is that it needs to fall on the family first. But then Paul lists three additional requirements under which widows become the responsibility now of the church. Look at verses 9 and 10. A widow is to be put on the list. Now remember, this was a list that the local church kept, where they would put the names of widows on that list, probably to keep track of who they were, to make sure that their needs were taken care of. If you want to make sure you do something, put it on a list, right? And so he says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. So the first requirement is an age requirement, not less than 60 years old. Why 60? I'm not really sure. But there was an age requirement. So he says that it must not be less than 60. I would presume it's probably because um, younger than that, he would encourage them to marry, or maybe it was because under 60 they could still work and provide. You know, it's much like in our culture and society, you get to a point where it gets more difficult to work. You know, I'm a white man over 50, which means if I lose my job, it's a little, higher for me to, or a little harder for me to find a job because, you know, the culture we live in right now. And so there is a time when it becomes much more difficult to provide for yourself. And so it may be that's why. But that's the rule. 60. Um, Many churches still apply that today as the rule should be 60 because that's what the scriptures say. I think that's probably a good rule. The second principle that he gives us here, or the second requirement, I'm sorry, is a moral one. Notice it says, verse 9, I'm sorry, verse, um, yeah, verse 9, Having been the wife of one man. Now this is a tricky one. The wife of one man. Some interpret this phrase to mean that a widow cannot have been married more than once and certainly never divorced or she can't be cared for by the church. The problem with this interpretation is that the phrase is not that she hasn't been divorced. It says that she must be a one-woman man. And what's interesting about that phrase is that it refers to faithfulness and devotion in marriage. It's a character statement. In fact, that's the way the NIV actually translates it. The NIV translates it as, has been faithful to her husband. We've actually found this same statement used in extra-biblical writings, meaning culturally, which tells us how that phrase was used culturally, and it was used to refer to the moral character of somebody. Were they faithful to a spouse? And so that's why the NIV translates it that way. Other translations like the New American Standard prefer to translate it in a literal sense, just try to translate it like it reads, and then allows us to then interpret that as we understand. And so that's why most translations translate this as either one woman man or the wife of one man. Um, Probably one of the best descriptions I've heard about this is by John MacArthur. He says this, A one-woman man is a woman who has been totally devoted to her husband. It speaks of purity in action and attitude, as in the case of the overseer in chapter 3, verse 2, who was said to be a one-woman man. It does not refer to marital status. Such a woman lived in complete fidelity to her husband in a chaste, pure, unspotted marriage relationship. If Paul had meant to exclude women who had been divorced, he could have used a much easier phrase, she must not be divorced. 
But instead he goes to her character. She must be the kind of woman who is committed to one man. We all know women who have been divorced. And it wasn't because they weren't committed to their husband. My sister is a perfect example. Her husband came out as gay. She stayed with him for five years. She was committed to him. And in fact, she is still committed to him and maintaining a relationship with him for the sake of the kids who are now grown. Now, she's not going to go back and marry him. But the reality of it is, Paul is not talking about divorce here. He's talking about character. Was she a woman who was fully, faithfully committed to her husband? That's the issue. And it's the same when it comes to elders. There was a man in my first church here in Ohio whose wife had left him. He remained single and was committed to remaining single because he believed that it was wrong for him to pursue somebody else. As long as his wife was still single, there was still opportunity for reconciliation. Well, some people in the church recommended him for eldership. Scripturally, I couldn't deny that based on this phrase. But he came forward and said, you know, because I might be seen as not above reproach and because this may cause some in the church to stumble with me being an elder, I'm not going to accept that if it were offered to me. I think he was right in doing so. If anything, that's the kind of elder you would want. Somebody who thinks that way. So this phrase has to be understood as a character issue. And so the way that I would practice this when it comes to widows is that I would look at their last marriage. Were they fully, faithfully committed to their husband? I think that's the way it ought to be applied. So again, I would look at their most recent marriage. Finally, there's the reputation principle or requirement. The last thing Paul says, he first says that they should be at least 60. Second, he says they ought to morally have been faithful to their husband. But finally, there's an issue of reputation. That's the final requirement. He says, having a reputation of good works in chapter, in verse 10. Having a reputation of good works. And then he provides some examples of what he means by that. He says, if she's brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, So he basically gives a list. Now, it doesn't mean that every widow has to have had children. She has to have shown hospitality to strangers. She had to have washed the saints. We check this off. Has she done every one of these? These are examples that Paul gives as to what it means for her to have a good reputation. But that's the focus. She must have a good reputation to be put on the list. Now, when widows do not meet these requirements, look at what Paul says. The church is not obligated to care for them. Look at verses 11 and following. But refuse to put younger widows, those who are under 60, on the list. Why? For when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. In other words, what he's saying is they'll want to pursue, if they're younger, there's a much greater chance that they'll want to marry somebody else. And that's okay. He's not frowning upon it. In fact, later on he tells them, I think younger widows should get married again. So he's not frowning on that, but he's saying there's a problem. If you put them on the list, we start caring for them as a church. He says what? Verse 12, thus incurring condemnation. Why? Because they've set aside their previous pledge. Remember what I said about when when widows would go on this list, it appears that they would take a pledge to remain unmarried. 
and allow the church to take care of their needs. But in return for that, would spend their time ministering through prayer on behalf of the church. And so he says that what would happen to some of these younger widows is as they became attracted to somebody else, they wanted to get married to somebody else, they would ignore that pledge. Probably in the sense that they would start pursuing that other relationship while being taken care of by the church, which is inappropriate. Because remember, it was the church will take care of you in exchange for you ministering. It's much like, you know, I stand up here and I teach and you give me a housing allowance. Would it be fair to me continue taking that housing allowance if I didn't teach? Absolutely not. It's very similar here. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. I was watching this series last night on, uh, I think it was Fox Business about the um, Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers. And it was interesting with the Vanderbilt family. You remember they built the railroads at one point. Um, what's his name? Commodore Vanderbilt was the richest man in America. Be the equivalent of about $6 billion today. But what's interesting is when he had died, he passed his inheritance on to his one son. When that son then died, he passed his inheritance on to both of his sons. And they completely squandered it. Absolutely squandered it. And the way that it was portrayed, and I don't know how much truth is to this, but they basically said it was because women in that time and culture and society with the elite didn't generally work. They basically, their job was to um, climb the social ranks. And so they would build these massive mansions and beautiful, and they show, I mean, you can go out to the, uh, the place out in um, North Carolina, what's it called? The, uh, what's it? Biltmore. The Biltmore, exactly. You can kind of see it. Well, man, that totally destroyed their wealth. But it was interesting the way that this, this, the uh, show portrayed the women was, was kind of that gossipy, banging shoulders and just being out there and trying to one-up one another. And Paul's not indicting saying this is what widows, young widows do. He's simply saying that there's a real danger if you take a young widow and put her on the list and care for her needs, and she's still young and she's still spry and she's out there, that she may be prone to some of these things where an older widow might not you know my mom is now 80 <laughs> people have teased her about getting married again and she's like are you kidding me that's the last thing on my mind she has no desire okay if she were 40 I think it'd be a whole different ball game she was a looker when she was 40 she might be well my brother and I might be fighting them off with a big stick and so Paul says there are requirements that these widows have to meet in order to be put on the list. But he actually gives us the reasons why, what we just read. But then there's also another reason. Look down at verse 16. Verse 16. Or actually, we'll look back at verse, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. What's getting at there is some of the younger widows had even abandoned faith in Christ for whatever reason. Doesn't tell us why here. But then look what he says in verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist who? Those who are widows indeed. You see why there's requirements now? Why the church should not care for widows when there is a family that is willing 
and can care for them is so that they can actually take care of those who need it. Plain and simple. So what's our takeaway with this? The church is obligated to care for those within the body of Christ when they are in need and can only do this when we have our priorities right. We genuinely have to focus on those who genuinely need to be cared for. You know what's interesting about this? One of the things we've chosen to do here at Renew, um, we've always said that the finances that we take into the church will do things like, you know, keep the lights on and stuff like that, but that we also wanted to be able to live well below our means so that we could always use that to care for people within the body of Christ. Okay, that's what our desire has always been. And we have done a number of things over the years. If you remember, we helped the Malins adopt Lucy. I mean, what an amazing, I mean, you talk about an evangelistic thing there, where you take somebody from a culture like the Chinese culture and you bring them into a place, into a Christian family here. We saw that as a good use of our finances here. And so God had blessed us where we took, I think it was $5,000 or so, to do that. If you remember when Steve Mitchell's wife died, left his wife a widow and a young daughter of, I think, seven. Somebody showed up, a visitor, a friend of mine showed up and handed me $2,000 and said, here, use this for your family, use it any way you want. But I got to thinking, I don't need it. But what if the church could add to that and we could use that to support Steve Mitchell's wife? And so that's what we did. The church took another $3,000 and we put it in that. I gave the 2000 to the church because I looked at it as he was simply using me as a channel to get to, Mike, or get to um, Steve's wife. So we as a church then took that, $5,000 total then, and we gave that to Steve's wife to help her during a very difficult time. Steve had earned very little money in his lifetime as a pastor. In fact, he worked another job in his first church for years, decades, if I remember right. And so there was a desperate need there. You remember when it came time for Jeremiah and Julie, when they had to leave the mission field and come back here. They bought this old dilapidated house that they were told should have been torn down. But instead, they put some money, they put some sweat equity into it, they turned it into a home, and we had a privilege of, I don't remember exactly how much we gave them, but we we, we had a, a fair amount of money that we were able to give to other believers to help them. In fact, When we asked them exactly what their need was, it was exactly what we had already been thinking about as a church family giving to them. Clearly, God was at work. That's the way it's supposed to work. And then most recently with helping out Ginny with the van. Now, that's a unique situation in that Ginny has some family that's there to help her out. Now, here's the key to all this stuff. What we've been talking about this morning is at what point does the church become obligated to care for somebody... There are very specific rules, and we've laid those out. That doesn't mean that we have to limit ourselves to that. And so, we've decided to not limit ourselves to that, and to be able to use what you guys have given to us to be able to do that. And it's because of your goodness and your grace that we've been able to do that and to help Ginny out with this situation. All right? So, we have the principles that guide us to care for those. And it always starts, I believe biblically, it always starts with our own body first. And it doesn't mean we don't go outside. We do, and we have. But it always starts here. You know, the principle of giving that we see in the New Testament is we give based on need. 
It's what we see that we are driven to give to. And so that's what we see this morning. And it starts with widows in our midst. But it doesn't get limited to that. 